Would you thank the worship team with me for leading us to worship today? Amen. Amen. This is truly holy ground. In fact, 28 years ago, out on the Wally Lawn, I know it's like forever ago, I was hanging out with a couple of my buds during Festival of Life. Anybody ever went to Festival of Life? Woo! So I was hanging out with my buds out there. I had started liking this girl from my church, and uh, I was afraid that she was going to think I was crazy just constantly being around her. So she was in the gym watching some game. I thought I would just kind of step away for a little while with the guys. We were all hanging out in the Wally Lawn, and uh, there was this girl that I used to kind of flirt with a little bit who kind of decided that it was better to hang with us. And so she kept trying to like just get us to chase her, get me to chase her, and she was you know, becoming pretty aware that I could care less because I was already interested in somebody else. So at one point she took off, she ran away, and then came back and she said, John, she said, Melanie is in the gym and she is crying. She thinks you're mad at her and, you know, she's really upset. So I took off, I don't remember even how fast, but I zoomed across campus, found my way into the gym, came inside, and there was Melanie, like, just smiling at the game, cheering for the game, and she looked at me, she said, what, what, what are you doing here? I say, I thought you were upset. She's like, I'm fine. Well, right about then, this girl comes in the gym. She's laughing. She thinks it's hilarious. Needless to say, I sit down, and I am really ticked. I'm really upset that she did this to me. I'm sitting there kind of like, this is crazy. I can't believe she did this. And then suddenly, the whole event is kind of like playing over my head. And about that point, I started thinking, this is a little weird. Like, before, if I would have ran inside the gym here to do this, it would have been because I was scared that I was going to kind of like ruin the relationship, you know? And for the very first time, I'm thinking, man, I came in here because I was really worried that this girl was going to be hurt. I, I mean, this is weird. It's a weird feeling to be able to be thinking this. And at that point, I knew it was a weird feeling, but I can tell you that this year, that girl and I are celebrating 21 years of marriage, so I know it was love. Yeah, come on now, give it up. I mean... It, it, if she had to put up with me for 21 years, then you know that it was the real deal, right? Needless to say, there have been significant moments in my life that have happened here in this place. Two years later, another festival of life. I mean, these are big events in my life, at least. Festival of life, two years later, I'm sitting in the gym, opening ceremonies for festival of life. There is a guy named Al Denson who is singing this song called Be the One. Back then, that was gold for youth leaders because, you know, it was the moment that, you know, suddenly God just started kind of, you know, strumming the, the strings of the heart, and, and God used it in my life. It was a significant moment. At that point, God and I began to have this conversation, and I, I got to be honest with you, not often am I even able to translate necessarily that audible voice in my life. Sometimes I'm not even sure how to clarify my own thoughts in that process, but that was one of those moments that God and I began to have one of those holy conversations, and I can tell you exactly where I was seated, but I was in the middle of that concert, that conversation where he's singing out, will you be the one? And God and I began to have a wrestling match, kind of like Jacob, and I was finding myself saying, God, I don't think so. At that point, I was pretty clear that I had determined that as a good Christian young man, I was going to take and follow God, but I was going to kind of do it with my own little twist. I I had grown up in a household where we had begun to struggle in the last several years financially, and I, I knew that, that, that being financially secure was a pretty big deal to our family, because we weren't. So I started to argue with God, and I, I felt like God was saying, I wanted you to do something. I want you to pursue this. I want you to be the one. And so somewhere in the middle of that conversation, I said, God, I'm sorry. I'd like to be financially secure. Thank you very much. 
And God said to me, but if you do what I want you to do, you'll be happy. Now at that point, I really don't understand exactly what that word happy meant, but for me, it at least meant some sense of joy, a sense of knowing that God would be with me, that God would walk through every step of it, but I still wanted to be financially secure. At that point, I was imagining a candy apple red Porsche, and I knew exactly where I was headed. And so I went back and forth with God. I had this conversation multiple times in the gymnasium there, five times about, as I remember it, that we started arguing about this process, until finally, at one moment, I finally gave up and said, yes, I will do what you want me to do, God. And this, this peace passes, that passes all understanding washed over me, just like the Apostle Paul talks about, and I began to literally weep. Now, I was still just dating this girl at this point. She wasn't that completely committed to me, at least I thought. So I thought I better wipe away the tears as quick as I could. I didn't want to embarrass myself. And as soon as I turned to Melanie, she was crying. And I, in the best and wisest response I could give, I looked at her and I said, you okay? And she said, you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, don't you? That was a significant moment in my life. And it is a moment that has formed me and shaped me in significant ways. Partly because the rest of that journey in the last 25 years of pastoral ministry have included me being able to somehow step back and say, God, are you serious? You told me that you would give me joy. You would make me happy if I followed you. But I have been desperately asking every single day of that, is that true? Are you going to be faithful to that process? And it was a significant moment for me in that I also discovered that while I was the one who was saying to God, I will be the one, I will answer your call, there was this communal aspect to it that I was finding with, at that point, my girlfriend who also was recognizing the faithfulness of God. And then my youth group as they processed it with me, my youth pastor who over a couple of slices of pizza was processing it with me a couple hours later. My church family at home when I got back and they asked me some tough questions and they processed me through the conversations of what that looked like and what I needed to do to change majors and all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that was being settled in that moment. And I am so, so grateful for this being a place where God was able to speak to me in some significant ways. But I believe that's a lesson that I've been learning from that point forward. And I think there's some hope for us, especially today as we learn some similar lessons. Before I kind of step into that a little bit more deeply, I'm going to be in trouble from the people in Lowell if I don't do a quick shout out to all of the ENC Eastern grads that are part of my congregation. And I especially want to take and make sure that I give uh, audible recognition to one of those whose birthday is today, who just recently at homecoming was uh, the, one of the emergent leader alum. So would you join me for a moment in just kind of giving a shout out to Matthew Prawl, the birthday boy, for a moment? I appreciate that. He's our church treasurer, and he said I don't get paid if I don't do that. So thanks for letting me do that. By the way, also, wherever she is, Katie's birthday. Woo! Awesome. Matt, if you're listening, she got more praise and celebration than you did, just so you know. Just kind of keeping it real here for a moment. Your birthday, too? All right, whose birthday? Everybody got to do everybody's birthday for today. Here we go. All right, I got a couple of them back here. Well, on the screen, if you guys put that slide up for me for a minute, I, I want to talk to you about scorched identities. Now, 
If I was to say this to my congregation, most of them would be like, well, what are you talking about? What's going on? But my sense is that you as students at this particular place in life, for most of you are, know exactly what that's about. Because you live in a world in which from the very beginning of time, you have been finding yourself trying to figure out who you are, bouncing off, pinging off the world around you, and finding out that the things that you thought were true weren't so much. Then you're left finding out and figuring out how to be able to discover somewhere along the way who you really are, what there is of value in your life, what there is in terms of hope regarding the process of just growing up and being somebody of significance in this world. I want to suggest to you today that there is a way that we can transform the socio-data that we're constantly receiving through socio-faith. And that is as we discover a God who is truly present with us in the realities of our lives. Every single day there's information that's coming at us constantly. In fact, it's happening probably as we're sitting here. Those of you that have your head down and your face is glowing right now. You're probably getting some socio-data about who you are. Back in 1981, this conversation was already beginning to blossom. A French philosopher by the name of Baudrillard wrote a book entitled Simulation and Simulacra. Now, I geeked out one day and found that particular book when I stopped the video on an old movie called The Matrix when he was taking the, the hacking information, sticking it inside a hollowed out book. And I really kind of upped my game and really nerded out on the thing when I ended up buying the book and reading it. I don't just normally read French philosophy, but uh, the book says something pretty significant to me about a world that I've also grown up in and lived in and, and the world that you are certainly living in today. It says to us in that book that there are places in our world that we are presented simulations. Things that we are told represent realities in our world. And when we get to those things, we find out they are exactly that. For example, if you were to walk into a flight simulator and you were to learn how to fly a plane, the moment that you get into a plane, you'll now know how to fly a plane because they match up. It's an exact simulation of what's there. But Baudrillard was suggesting that there is also something happening in culture that we especially see today, and that is something called simulacra. What he means by that is that we're presented something that we're told looks just like what you'll find in the world, but when you go looking for it, it doesn't exist. For example, when you go food shopping and you're sitting there looking at those magazines that are nearby the counter as you're waiting for your turn to get up to pay for your food, and suddenly you get this idea that if you happen to wear that outfit, that you're going to suddenly be happy, or if you work out like the guy whose picture is there, that you're going to find yourself uh, being successful in life, or, or that if your table has all of that food and is decorated like that, then you know you'll be a happy family. But that world doesn't exist. I mean, the pictures there have been airbrushed, they've been photoshopped, they've been somehow touched up, or even that food maybe is plastic. We live in a world that's just kind of tricking us. I, I mean, some of you remember just a few years ago here when the movie came out, Scorch Trials. It was, it was built upon this very theme, this sense in which there's a world that has told you this is true, this is right, this is what you should know about who you are and how you'll exist in this world. But that literally, the enemy is wicked because it's trying to trick you. It's telling you that's true, but it's not. But before I start throwing this out there like it's this world against us, the reality is, is that we're a part of this. I mean, I'm not quite sure exactly what you do the first thing in the morning, whether you grab your phone and begin to already start seeing who responded to your tweets last night or whatever it is. There's a sense in which 
we all contribute to this particular story because we end up finding ways to be able to communicate to ourselves who we are, what we're about, what, are, what, what things are of value. Uh, back in the early 2000s, PBS did a special entitled Merchants of Cool. The whole premise of the, the, the film is to try to figure out how in the world cool gets presented. I just pretty much always look at you know, Pastor Stretch and figure out how he's dressed. I just want to be like him, man. Totally cool, right? Okay. All right, moving right along. Stretch, there was like no applause, no like agreement there. Sorry, buddy. But in Merchants of Cool, they said, you know, we figured this thing out. We've realized that we don't even have to sell anybody anything because they sell themselves stuff. And I don't remember the exact kind of scenario they had, but they showed this video where they had brought a bunch of teenagers, invited them, told them they'd get some free products, and they said, listen, we've got like kind of like this party boat, and you can come on here, and you can be able to, to enjoy the free products and just have a great time for the evening. And so these students get on, and I can't remember exactly what the product was. We'll just call it like scarves and hats. I mean, it could be anything, because that's really how the way the world works. And so they get on there, and they're all putting on these scarves and their hats, and they start walking around with video cameras, and they've got screens all around, and they put on the music loud, and these students are kind of looking in the camera, like, you know, making faces and doing all kinds of stuff. And before too long, they start trying to get on camera. They start trying to do their, like, at that point, their initial version of a selfie kind of a thing. And they're doing this whole deal in front of everybody in the camera. And then after the event is over, they leave, and you know what happens. These are some of the first students who then begin to start buying these products. They got a couple for free, but they sold themselves a, a bill of goods, if you will. The problem for us is that we do that to ourselves on a regular basis. Perhaps it is the way we constantly look for the likes. Perhaps the issue is the ways in which we're constantly uh, putting ourselves down and the ways in which we're grading ourselves. We're providing our own socio data that helps us to be able to know who we are, what we're about, and why we have some value somewhere in this system we call life. I loved the language that was presented to us recently in some of our recent chapels when we started to talk about what it means to be human. Our chaplain shared with us language that added to that some beauty comments and conversations and and it re redefines for us a deep sense of who we are as people who are able to know that God has truly laid within us not just a foundation by which the kingdom might come truly on earth as it is in heaven, but whereby God looks at us and truly says, this is my creation. She is good. He is good. I loved when President Boone was speaking to us recently and talked to us about the struggle to be able to be human. And how the issue is so often confused because in this battle to figure out how to be beautiful people, we start looking so many other places. We start trying to define this particular aspect of development and growth in us by all of the sociodata that's constantly coming in at us. But that God is wanting to say to us in a very simple way, look to me. Look to me in faith and trust that my present reality in your life is that which will help you to know who you are, whose you are, and where you will live from this point forward. That song, 26 years ago, helped shape my particular place of beginning to trust God, even in my calling. I want to share with you a song today, and I am not going to sing it because that is not my gifting set. 
But I want to share with you from the poetics of the psalm. And so if you'd put that screen on for me, Psalm 46, verse 10. Imagine the Lord speaking this into your life in the midst of the socio-data that you have, saying to you, that's enough. Now know that I am God. I am exalted among all nations. I am exalted throughout the world. Now, i got to be honest with you, when I hear this psalm quite often, I hear it from the place of just knowing that God has kind of raised the peg up and has made sure to let us know that God is supposed to be worshipped and adored. But somehow the psalmist felt it was important for us to make sure we understood that place of worship. But when I start contemplating the sociodata that's flying at me daily, I begin to hear this differently, and I begin to hear God speak to me about the places in which, as I know the Lord present in my life, that I'm able to find that all of this other stuff begins to make sense or doesn't make sense and can be easily dropped off because God is God in me. My freshman year of college, I was sitting in a synoptic gospels class and I remember kind of just doing my best to get the good grades, making sure that I was learning some things. And I was trying to study kind of that, that really neat parallel between all of the different Gospels. And somewhere in the midst of that, we were, we were, we were pulling together the, the Beatitudes, the blessings of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. In the midst of that, there was this moment that became for me a deep awareness of what it means to truly know that the Lord is Lord. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When I have heard that verse, and I had heard it all my life, I grown up in the church, I always was talking about religious things with my family. It was a part of our life. So I knew that. I'd memorized it somewhere along the way, I'm sure. I'd always focused on that last word, filled as if it was a one-off, as if it was one event that needed to happen in my life somewhere along the way that I just needed to make sure that I got my heart right with this righteous God and that I then was able to somehow be filled. Strangely enough, in a similar fashion to that moment when I said yes, there in that classroom in the front seat, because I was trying to stay focused, it was early morning and I could barely stay awake at that point in time. I remember realizing that that calling was not simply to be filled, but it was to exist in a place of hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God, that I would then be filled, but that I would then be filled again each and every day as I daily set myself in a place of desiring to let everything I know, everything I am, be, be oriented around this deep desire for the things of God. I mean... When we start talking about knowing God, most of the time we're thinking about what we have here as information. I'm deeply aware, especially in the pastoring of my congregation, that we live in a time period in which knowledge is an extremely overrated commodity. You can get all kinds of information very easily. You can know all kinds of stuff. It's a trivial pursuit world right now. But to truly know in the depth of our being everything that we have and everything that we are, the fullness of God's love and presence in our world, it's enough to give us hope. 
it's enough to help all of that data that, that may say it's true but may, may not be true tomorrow make sense when we live in a world where we know that God is constantly true, is constantly faithful, and will always be with us every step of the way. Now, I know that for many of us, we also define knowing by what happens simply in the chapel. Pastor Marcella had a beautiful message for us when she talked about the, the movement beyond worry to a place of prayer, and I think that's a significant part of that. There is significance in just coming in here and spending some time in prayer, being in your room, gathering some friends in a classroom, spending time in prayer wherever you might be. But I also know that there is something to be said about pursuing God, knowing God in the details of your studies, in the details of your work, figuring out whatever it is that you might do someday, even if it should be that you pick up a hammer and you are taking and finding a way to straighten a particular piece of wood somewhere, that when you do that, you're seeking out and figuring out in those moments the beauty of God's righteous love. It was a significant moment for me later in college, in fact, it was my senior year of college, when I, I was able to have this conversation with one of our math majors, and he began to talk about this place of knowing God and what he was doing. I love one of the statements that's made often by our president when he talks about the beauty of God's calling is not just for those that are going to be pastors and missionaries. The beauty is for every single one of you who recognize that these hands and these feet, these lips, this mind, this being can be able to be used for the purposes of God. But that we don't just simply say, okay, so God, you're there. And so now that I've got you in my pocket and you're going to get me through all this, I move on but that you and I deeply know the fullness of God and everything we do pursuing to know God. I really annoyed my roommates one morning when I woke up early, getting ready for class. I was having one of those moments where I was really excited. I was just feeling close to God. And so in my shower, in my apartment with six other roommates, I started singing out loud just praises and worship. It finally ended when one of them came in and threw a shoe through the shower curtain at me, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it just was one of those moments where I just couldn't help myself. And you know what? What would happen to this world if more and more people didn't necessarily wake up their roommates with singing in the shower, but began to find themselves enjoying what we, what we heard from Brother Lawrence years ago, practicing the presence of God, knowing God with everything you have, knowing God with everything you are, knowing God with every dream you've got, 24-7. only begin to imagine. And I can only begin to imagine the way in which the community begins to speak into that. Because we go into this world pursuing health, wholeness, pursuing truth, participating in the kind of socio-data that really should be presented rather than grabbing the stories that now have gotten way bigger than life and somehow finding a way to not participate in them. And allowing God to speak in healthy and wholesome ways. One of the strange privileges of being a pastor is that you walk through life with families, with individuals. And it's been, it's been tough this year. I've had to say goodbye to some, some people who were key leaders in our church. Just as I've had to walk through some difficult moments, even sharing in a similar fashion what I heard President Boone talking about when he was referencing the ashes to ashes conversation as he placed ashes on his six-month-old granddaughter. 
especially when recently I had a funeral for just a little two-month-old. But I remember this passage of Scripture that I want to give to you as a blessing today. It's the passage of Scripture that I use at the beginning of every single funeral that I do. And I don't just give it to the people to say somehow we're kind of holding on to this for the sake of the person who's just passed away. I give it to the people who've gathered today who have been themselves scorched, who've been burned by the world around them, in this particular instance, by the pain and the loss that they're feeling right at this moment. But I offer this to you because I have a sense that more than just simply saying hang true to God and trust the truth of God, I'm talking to a bunch of people who have been burned, who've been consistently over and over, either by yourself, by the world around you, burned, scorched by things that you thought were true, things that you thought you could hang on to, things that you thought you could trust, that today you grieve because they weren't what you thought they were. So as a pastor, somebody who is simply a brother with you along the way, someone who joins you in your calling, somebody who celebrates a God who has consistently made God's self known to me and to us, and especially among this particular place in the world. Let me share with you some prophetic wisdom that comes from Isaiah 43. But now, says the Lord, the one who created you, people of God, the one who formed you, children of God, don't fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be scorched and flame won't burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Would you pray with me for a moment? Oh God, I mean, knowing you, seriously, it's pretty huge. I mean, barely can know the people in our lives that we care about faithfully. I mean, my wife, even after this many years of marriage, is, is a deep mystery to me. I, I think she would choose this and then suddenly she chooses something else. How am I going to know you? But isn't that the problem? So often I, I end up just kind of feeling satisfied with the fact that I know you. And so that what I do, I end up doing for me. Whether it be in my particular passions or in my drives or in my interests, or, or whether it be somehow in the ways in which I think life is valuable over here or over here. To know you means that the world is certainly much bigger than simply John Majesse's ideas. But to know you is also to be intimate with you, to find out what it means to be your human being, and to find out what it means for you to be in my humanity, walking through the times in the day in which I feel really awesome and things are going well, as well as the times in which I feel like I don't have a clue how I'm going to be able to accomplish this or do that. Or there is significance in the moments in which you fill me, you are present with me. 
you help me? Lord, I remember that statement that I've heard over and over again in my church from, in fact, one of the children of a former pastor of this particular church. As Mark Metcalf says to me over and over again, John, remember three things. Number one, that God is good. Number two, that God is personally interested in your story. Number three, Jesus never fails. Oh God, I ask that in these moments you would help my brothers and sisters in this place to have the socio data that they receive, that they participate in, transformed by a socio faith as a part of the beloved community in this place and around the globe that they might, that we might discover the power of your presence, the fullness of your love, freedom that comes when you who called us is faithful every step of the way. We lift to you our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that we can't lift ourselves. You, by your spirit, active and present in the church gathered in this place, raises us up. That we are able to know at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day that we know exactly what we're supposed to do. We thank you and praise you. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Pastor John. Can we stand together as we close with the doxology? Praise God from whom Go in peace. You are dismissed.